Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome back. We'll start by answering the trivia question from last time. To what tribe, meaning to which of the 12 tribes of Israel, did Lehi and his family belong? We find the answer to this question in Alma 10, verse 3. It says, And Amminadi was a descendant of Nephi, who was the son of Lehi, who came out of the land of Jerusalem, who was a descendant of Manasseh, who was the son of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt by the hands of his brethren. So Lehi's family was of the tribe of Manasseh, son of Joseph. And now we'll resume. Lehi was dying. In the last chapter, he gave his oldest son Laman a final blessing. In chapters 2, 3, and 4, he'll give final blessings to his other children. And today we'll be covering chapters 2 and 3, in which he gives blessings to his youngest two sons, Jacob and Joseph. In chapter 2, he talks to Jacob, the older of the two. Lehi told Jacob, quote, Behold, in thy childhood thou didst suffer afflictions and much sorrow because of the rudeness of thy brethren. However, Lehi tells Jacob in verse 3, quote, Thou shalt dwell safely with thy brother Nephi. In the next few verses, we learn that Jacob was a follower of the Savior. And in verses 3 and 4, Lehi says, quote, Thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God. Wherefore, I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. For thou hast beheld that in the fullness of times he cometh to bring salvation unto man. And thou hast beheld in thy youth his glory. Wherefore, thou art blessed, even as they unto whom he shall minister in the flesh. What exactly does Lehi mean by, quote, thou hast beheld in thy youth his glory, end quote. So we find the answer to that in 2 Nephi 11, when Nephi is talking about Isaiah. In the end of verse 2, he says about Isaiah, For he verily saw my Redeemer, even as I have seen him. Then continuing in verse 3, he says, And my brother Jacob also has seen him, as I have seen him. So Nephi and Jacob and Isaiah had all seen the Savior, and Jacob was still young when he saw him. Okay, with that as background, in the rest of the chapter, Lehi talks to Jacob about the plan of salvation. He introduced it by saying, And the way is prepared from the fall of man, and salvation is free. His message to Jacob focuses on the fall and God's plan for us to overcome it. So where do we get the information that we need to overcome the fall? Verse 5 explains a little bit. It says, and men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil. Okay, so God will not tell us everything, but he does tell us enough to know good from evil. Continuing in the same verse. And the law is given unto men, and by the law no flesh is justified. Or by the law men are cut off. Yea, by the temporal law they were cut off, and also by the spiritual law they perish from that which is good, and become miserable forever. The law he gave doesn't justify us. I 
looked up the definition of justify at encyclopedia.com and it says to declare or make righteous in the sight of God. So the law does not justify us or make us righteous in the sight of God. Instead, because we are fallen, the law blocks us from God's presence and all that is good and we become miserable forever by law. Lehi explained that redemption comes through the Messiah. He sacrificed himself for sin to accept the law's consequences for all those with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. But, quote, unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. So it is only by having a contrite spirit and accepting Christ's sacrifice on our behalf that we can meet the requirements of the law. In verse 9, we read that Christ made intercession for all men. So intercession is defined as, quote, intervening on behalf of another or entreaty in favor of another. So he intervenes or entreats on our behalf. Okay, in the following verses, beginning with 11, Lehi discussed the need for opposition in God's plan. Good choices only exist because bad choices do. Righteousness is the opposite of wickedness. Life opposes death, law opposes sin, and so on. Lehi listed several other pairs of opposites and concluded by saying, in effect, that a universe without opposites would be a universe without God. And since the universe could not have existed without God, that without opposition, quote, all things must have vanished away. But, said Lehi, There is a God who created everything, both things to act and things to be acted upon. Lehi said that opposition also allowed God to achieve his own eternal purposes. So, after creating Adam and Eve in the garden, he made two trees, which were essentially opposites. One had sweet fruit, the forbidden fruit, and the other had bitter fruit, the tree of life. What he said next in verse 16 has always intrigued me. He says, Wherefore the Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself. Wherefore, man could not act for himself, save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other. What that means is the mere existence of opposites or differentiation does not give someone agency. It does not give someone a choice. If you've ever read Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll, the Cheshire Cat has a chat about this with Alice. Alice says, Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? The Cheshire Cat said, Well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. Alice says, I don't much care where. The Cheshire Cat said, Then it doesn't much matter which way you go. So, for a choice to be made, said Lehi and the Cheshire Cat, you must be tempted or desire one of the options. He then introduced Satan, who, Lehi concluded from his research, was an angel fallen from heaven who sought that which was evil before God. Satan's role was to provide the temptation needed for us to make choices. Lehi also said this, quote, And because he had fallen from heaven and had become miserable forever, he sought also the misery of all mankind. Satan was miserable, meaning, per the discussion above, that he was neither happy holy nor like God. He tempted Eve that she could become like the gods, knowing good and evil, if she ate from the tree with the sweet fruit. Thus, being tempted, she was able to choose, and after 
eating the fruit, she and Adam were driven from the garden, and they began to fill the earth and multiply. Verse 21, And the days of the children of men were prolonged, according to the will of God, that they might repent while in the flesh. Wherefore, their state became a state of probation, and their time was lengthened according to the commandments which the Lord God gave unto the children of men. For he gave commandment that all men must repent. For he showed unto all men that they were lost because of the transgression of their parents. Humans live much longer than most creatures. And if we can trust the numbers in the Bible, they used to live even longer. Adam reportedly lived almost a thousand years. This long lifespan was to give them time to repent in mortality. Although they were flawed because of the fall, without the fall, Adam and Eve would have remained childless in the Garden of Eden with nothing ever changing. They would have been unable to choose good because they were incapable of sin. They would have had no joy because they would have been incapable of misery. But God wanted us to have joy, and so Adam fell. Verse 25, Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. This chapter, 2 Nephi 2, presented why the fall was necessary. God wanted us to have joy, freedom, and eternal life, but those couldn't exist unless misery, captivity, and death were also options. We couldn't make choices unless we were tempted. Lehi concluded his blessing to Jacob by exhorting him to choose the path of eternal life. Now we move to chapter 3, where he has a very different discussion with Jacob's younger brother, Joseph. Verse 1, And now I speak unto you, Joseph, my lastborn. Thou wast born in the wilderness of mine afflictions, yea, in the days of my greatest sorrow did thy mother bear thee. Jacob and Joseph were both born during Lehi's eight-year journey in the wilderness. Although verse 1 hints that Joseph was born during an unusually sad period, Lehi might have referred to their entire eight-year journey as the days of his greatest sorrow. Anyway, Lehi spent most of this chapter, which is his blessing to Joseph, prophesying of future and past events. He said that Joseph's descendants would never be wholly exterminated. He also told Joseph that he was a descendant of Joseph sold into Egypt, like we talked about in the trivia question. And, quote, great were the covenants of the Lord which he made unto Joseph. For example, God promised Joseph that he would, quote, raise up a righteous branch from among his descendants. Lehi clarified that this prophecy did not refer to the Messiah, but instead to a a branch which was broken off, but not forgotten. In the latter days, the Messiah would show himself to this branch and bring them from darkness to light and from captivity to freedom. It seems that this branch most likely referred to Lehi's family. They were part of the house of Israel, and although they had been separated or broken off from the main tree, they were not forgotten. In the next verses, Lehi quoted Joseph in Egypt, who received a prophecy from the Lord that one of his descendants would be a great seer. We'll see shortly that he's referring to Joseph Smith. This seer would help his brethren learn about the Lord's covenants with their ancestors. This seer would be great like unto Moses and bring forth the word of God and convince his brethren of the truth of the word of God, the Bible, which they had already received. Verse 14 begins like this. And thus prophesied Joseph, saying, Behold, that seer will the Lord bless, and they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. 
Still quoting from Joseph in Egypt, Joseph said there would be two records kept, one by his own descendants and one by Judah's descendants. Lehi was a descendant of Joseph, and the Jews who wrote the Bible descended from Judah. Together, their two records, the Book of Mormon and the Bible, would confound false doctrine, stop contention, establish peace among Joseph's descendants, and teach them of their ancestors and the Lord's covenants. Lehi then provided information about a future seer that a modern reader will identify as describing Joseph Smith. In addition to being a seer, both the seer and his father would be named Joseph. Joseph of Egypt said, And his name shall be called after me, and it shall be after the name of his father. So this verse is more interesting than it appears. One of the great questions about the Book of Mormon is, who wrote it? So let's pretend for a minute that the Book of Mormon is a work of fraud and was not written by America's ancient inhabitants and translated by Joseph as he claimed that it was. If the book is not authentic, well, the logical conclusion is that Joseph Smith wrote it. However, this theory runs into trouble when you start to look at Joseph's qualifications. He had a third grade education, had a little access to books or information. Even as an adult, he could barely write a coherent letter. And Joseph was accused of many things as a boy, but he was never accused of spending too much time in the library. Could such a man write a 500-page internally consistent book? We'll discuss this more in future videos, but the short answer is no. Such a work would have been impossible for someone of his qualifications, and to do it in the amount of time that he did it in. But anyway, that's all for a future discussion. But if Joseph didn't write it, who did? Who was his accomplice? Or did he happen to just find the Book of Mormon already completed and plagiarize it? Verse 15 essentially rules out Joseph plagiarizing someone else's work because it gives his name as that of the seer who would write the book. And if he had accomplices, we have to wonder why they'd allow Joseph to take full credit for the book. Also, whoever wrote the Book of Mormon made an extraordinary claim, although not specifically in this chapter, they claimed that the book would go under the world hand in hand with the Bible. The baseball player Babe Ruth is famous for what has come to be known as his, quote, called shot. In 1932, he was playing at Wrigley Field and he supposedly pointed over the fence and then crushed a home run in the direction he had pointed. There's some debate over whether he was gesturing over the fence or whether he was making hand gestures at the players on the Cubs bench. Nonetheless, that called shot is a legendary moment because it's one thing to hit a home run, it's another one to say you're going to hit the home run and then do it. In my opinion, Joseph calling his shot was even more impressive. When Joseph published the Book of Mormon in March 1830, he was only 24 years old, and he was struggling to come up with funding to even get the book printed in the first place. And it was under these conditions that he called his shot, saying that the book would go to the ends of the earth. How confident, or perhaps how delusional, would someone need to be to think that a fraudulent book that they had invented would go forth among the nations hand in hand with the Bible? And it wasn't bad enough that he thought this. He also wrote it in the book itself. And this, this claim was so audacious that it would have been worthy of ridicule, and it was ridiculed. But then things happened exactly as the book said they would. Babe Ruth's pointing at the fence and then hitting a home run would have been easy by comparison. 
Lehi then concluded his blessing in verse 25, and, and now blessed art thou, Joseph, behold, thou art little. Wherefore, hearken unto the words of thy brother Nephi, and it shall be done unto thee, even according to the words which I have spoken. Remember the words of thy dying father, amen. The date stamp of these chapters is about 588 to 570 BC, as we said earlier. But this verse helps narrow down that range a little bit, maybe. We don't know much about Nephi's brother Joseph, other than that he was born in the wilderness between 600 and 592 BC. Based on these dates, Joseph could have been anywhere from four to 30 years old when Lehi gave him his blessing. But Lehi's statement, behold, thou art little, tells me that he's probably not yet, well, let's say 12 years old. This would put the date of Lehi's prophecy between 588 and 580 BC. That doesn't matter at all, but it's still interesting to me. Anyway, that's all we have for today. So let's end with a trivia question. If you know the answer to this, put it in the comments. What title did the Nephites give to their kings? Did they call them king, pharaoh, emperor, shah? So what title did the Nephites give their kings? Leave your answer in the comments and we will see you next time.